I'd like to, to offer some further reflections on our practice and what we're, what we're doing here, what we're engaged in together in this time of our retreat. And so I spoke a couple of nights ago about the path of practice as the, uh, the Buddhist tradition frames it, as the teachings of the Buddha articulate a, a way of uh, human transformation that's founded in an orientation towards what we could call goodness, the, uh, the practice and the action of what is wholesome in terms of generosity and in terms of restraint of harmful action that sense of caring for ourselves and our world in that very particular way. And then I spoke also some about the, uh, the cultivation, bhavana, the process of developing and bringing into being qualities of heart and mind that are supportive, that are nourishing for our well-being and for our world. And I think initially touched a little upon the the quality of, of unification, of calm, of, of, of steadiness, of collectedness. There's lots of different words we can use for it. And this is something, as I said, very useful, very important, and yet in itself not ultimately the final point or purpose of meditative practice. And it's easy for us to have the idea that we're trying to get calm or be calm. And of course, calm and a sense of a unification of mind and body is incredibly beneficial and wholesome and certainly worth developing and cultivating and working on the process for, for this, um, which we've spoken about. But it's, it's greater or it's deeper value is in providing the foundation, the framework, the conditions, we could say, for the arising of wisdom and compassion that when we are connected, when we are unified, when we're not so lost in our habitual disconnectedness, when we're not so lost in our pursuit of entertainment, we can start to see more clearly what's taking place in our minds, in our lives, and in our world, and also begin to recognize what may be an appropriate response to this. One of the things that we see in this is a, a process of constantly seeking experiences to make ourselves feel good or feel better. A way in which we often seek happiness through central sense contact, through having or getting experiences or things. And what we also notice is that it never quite lasts. And we find ourselves constantly looking or we can easily find ourselves constantly looking for something to fulfill us to something to complete us to something to bring a sense of wholeness or wholesomeness that we're somehow imagining to be or believing to be lacking and this process of kind of looking for something is 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 really worth giving attention to it's something I'm not imagining is news to you and you're probably not coming along to a meditation retreat imagining that some sort of uh, sort of material possessions are going to resolve the um, or fulfill or 
one's life, that, that sense of we, we probably have some understanding of the limits of our materialism, of materialism in our culture. And yet we can easily be in a process as we enter into spiritual practice where we're looking for a kind of experience that's going to fulfill us, that's going to do it for us. And no matter where we find ourselves, it's very easy to be looking to what could be better or different or other than where we are. That process of constantly looking away or looking for something else. And uh, I think it's, it's really important, again, that we don't judge this, but we notice what goes on in this. And there's a, there's a lovely story that I, I heard some years ago of His Holiness the Dalai Lama who went to visit a, um, a monastery, a, a Catholic monastery in America where he was at the time traveling. And he, he said that this monastery was, um, was very famous for producing these remarkable cheeses that were, that were famous throughout the state and the region. And they also made fruitcake for the local village market that they sold, to, you know, just to the, the nearby villages. And he said, while he was being shown around the monastery, again and again, they would come to him with these pieces of this famous and exquisite cheese to eat. And um, very proud of it, clearly, as they were, and rightly so. He said, and he said, the entire time they were offering me these pieces of cheeses, he said, all I wanted was a piece of fruitcake. And I find it very instructive and humorous and, of course, you know, in a way delightful in the way His Holiness seems to have an innocence about his wisdom and, and a very directness in it too. That way in which we're so often looking for what we don't have and not easily able to receive, appreciate or allow ourselves to be truly nourished by what is here. And there's always something that could be different, that could be improved. There's never a situation where that isn't so. And so what we start to become aware of as we practice is these ways we respond or react to experience, whereby when we find something that is as we liked, we crave, we grasp, we hold on to it. And we can't actually easily allow ourselves to enjoy it because we start thinking in terms of whether we can continue the experience, whether we can have it again. We start to feel afraid that we won't it won't last and, and to not really fully enjoy the experience because of that. Likewise, we encountering difficult experiences. So, so quickly move into a place where we want it to come to an end. We want to get rid of or prevent it from arising again. And often we get quite entangled with it in the fear that it will last forever. And yet the nature of all experiences that it comes and goes. We see this as we observe our breath, as we observe the sensations of our body, as we look at the movement of our thoughts and even the weather. I mean, it was so hot, wasn't it? For days. I don't know if anyone else started got tired of how hot it was. You're like, why is it so sunny? My, my, my lawn is drying up. My, my plants need, you know, all this extra care. How, how frustrating and annoying that it's so sunny. At some level, we can... Maybe we didn't quite get irritated with it, but that sense of we get kind of a little bit tired of it. And then all of a sudden it's gone. And it's like, oh, actually it's cold today. I don't know where you are, but where I am in Devon, for me, it feels quite cold. I was wearing a down vest today. And it's like, you know, down gilet. And it's like, huh, how quickly it shifts. And now I'm uncomfortably cold, having been uncomfortably hot just two days ago and for quite a long time it felt like. 
And it's so easy for us to kind of orient in that way towards, hmm, don't quite like it this way, want it different. And if we don't recognize that tendency in our mind, we will constantly be carried away by it. And the effect of it is that we disconnect. We disconnect from what, where we are and we disconnect from the, the possibility of, of finding an intimacy and a nourishment in our life where we are. So what we learn and practice, one of the elements that we are cultivating and developing in this, in this process of deepening wisdom is first of all seeing that things change that things change and because they change we could perhaps relate to them differently than we do understanding that things that we enjoy or appreciate will not last forever perhaps we might not hold on to them so tightly recognizing that that which is difficult or challenging to us will also not last forever we might feel able to rest in its presence to tolerate it to make space for that more easily. And in staying closer to our experience, we start to recognize that it's often that disconnection that happens. When we push away experience or try and hold on to it, we disconnect from the flow of our life. And that disconnection is actually a deeper painfulness, a deeper loss, a deeper grief or grievous element of our existence. And we learn what it means, or we have the opportunity to learn what it means to be equally near to all things. This is a, a way we could describe the quality of equanimity, where we learn to find balance in the midst of that which is difficult and challenging. Not to say that that's easy, not to say that we were going to necessarily like or enjoy all things. That it's not as if we're not supposed to feel sorrow when something lovely comes to an end. Although we're supposed to be delighted when something really difficult arises. Not at all. But do we nonetheless find a space in ourselves where we understand that this is how life is? It's not because we've messed it up. It's not because we've done it wrong. This is something universal about existence. And we share this with all life, with all human beings and all creatures and all living things. So we start to make peace with this reality. And when we're not so much in conflict with or fighting against or resisting how things are, we start to find some peace in the midst of them. We start to find some ease in the midst of them. So this process of learning to let go of our demands for things to be a certain way, to let be, to accept experience is as it is, not always as I want it to be. We start to find some peace around our reactivity. It doesn't always mean it goes away straight away, but we find some space around it. We learn to inhabit the very experience of it in our body, to breathe with it, to hold ourselves kindly in those places where we're afraid of what might be, or we're desperately longing for something to happen one way and not another. Understandable responses. But the wisdom of our life suggests that we can hold ourselves in that place rather than identify with those patterns of demanding or rejecting experiences. Because 
what we start to see is that although our world and our conditioning and our society tells us that sort of happiness somehow comes from getting what you want, in fact, if we look carefully, we see we don't choose what we want. It's not up to us. We just find we want something or we don't want something. We don't get to choose that. It's not actually personal. It's not even really ours. It's just what happens. And it's part of the way our, our system is wired up. But our system is wired up for survival. We're, we're wired up and trained at a certain deep biological level to, to try and avoid that which may be dangerous, that might you know, harm us or eat us. And of course, to seek for food and for shelter and for companionship and mates and all of that, which which is natural, which is appropriate, but doesn't in itself as a primary patterning serve happiness and deep fulfillment. And so, as I said, we don't choose what we want. There's a, again, another lovely story I heard about His Holiness, the Dalai Lama in this regard, where he described going to a conference and I think it was in New York. And he said every day he traveled, um, by, by taxi cab from his hotel to the conference venue. And they traveled down the street where apparently all the electrical goods retailers have their big shops. And he said how every day he would be driven down the street, he said, and I would see all these things in the shops. And after several days of this, he says, I just wanted all those things, he said, and I didn't even know what they were. And it's like, huh? Wow, yeah, I, I recognize that. How sweet to acknowledge we can kind of be wanting something without even really knowing what it is. Because that process is something that's manipulated to produce desire by a society that demands our economy keep us shopping, keep us unsatisfied, so we'll keep looking for more stuff, doing more things, wanting more of this and that because otherwise the whole thing would have to slow down amazingly. And I think it's been incredible to see, I think for many of us and perhaps many for whom this might've come as something of a surprise to see, hey, actually we can be quite happy with a lot less. We can be happy with a lot less. In fact, in fact, it's kind of surprising when we go through that initial period of unease of, Oh, I can't, go and entertain myself by getting some new things. It's like, oh, oh, I can breathe out. Ah, yeah, there's something, something about this pausing and that relentless momentum. And that cycle of always wanting something more, something different, trying to get somewhere else, trying to have something else, and also trying to become someone else, trying to somehow move into some form or shape of me that's different than the me that I am, that we can sometimes relate to in such a materialistic way that's so harsh, so painful, so tragic, in fact, where we don't easily find ourselves open, able to open our hearts to ourselves in the midst of our challenges, our limitations, our inevitable imperfections. Despite if the fact that if we really look, we see that all of that comes out of our attempt to take care of ourselves and whatever it is and whoever it is we care for and care about. 
So the process of, of finding deeper well-being is profoundly supported by this capacity we have to let go, to let go of those patterned reactivities, to begin to just say, actually, maybe I'll be okay with a little less. Or maybe it'll be all right, even if these difficult things are here, maybe I can find a connection with myself in the midst of this. And what we start to learn is that it's the process whereby we get caught in and identify with our reactions that leads to a disconnection from where we are. And actually the deeper pain, the deeper suffering, the deeper dissatisfaction we experience in our lives is because of that disconnection. It's not because of the absence of the thing we wanted or the presence of the thing we don't like. It's because our reaction to that condition is to disconnect from where we are. And we experience the two so closely laminated together that we don't distinguish them. The presence of the unwanted and the disconnect seem to us to be the same thing, but they're not. The absence of what we want and the disconnect seem to be the same thing, but they're not. The presence or absence of experiences or conditions, including people or things we might wish for, we aren't in control of. They depend on so many things that we can't determine. How we respond to that, however, we have much greater capacity to determine. Again, we're not entirely in control of it, but we can influence it profoundly and powerfully. And we can cultivate and develop the capacity to do so. So when we get pushed and pulled by our reactivity into the past and the future, we kind of distance ourselves from where we are because those very reactive patterns are painful and uncomfortable, unwanted to us. So often what we're wishing for when we want something is not actually just the sense of I want to get the thing, so I want my wanting to stop. I don't want to feel this uncomfortable wanting. And in wishing to get rid of something uncomfortable, it's not so much the thing itself often, it's that I don't want to experience the fear or the, or the dislike or the rejection that arises in me in its presence. And so we, we learn to make space to recognize, oh, oh, this is a pattern of reactivity taking place. We can see it. We can feel it. It doesn't mean we enjoy it or we like it, but with kindness and with courage, we can begin to meet it, to make space for it. And in making space for it, we realize we do not need to disconnect from where we are in order to handle this experience. That is perhaps what we learned as infants or very young human beings when we were overwhelmed and we had no capacity to handle our experience because we have very much less capacity when we're young. And as infants, we have very little. We're dependent on someone else to help us manage, to regulate and to handle the experience. And no matter how good a version of parenting we were fortunate enough to receive, the parenting can never be perfect. There's always times when we aren't able to receive the support we need. And for some of us, of course, the parenting was not even approaching anything like what we would have called perfect. 
there would have been big and difficult gaps in that. That means we're kind of used to feeling my only option is, get, is to disconnect as a survival mechanism, actually. And yet we have to relearn that as adult human beings, we have an immense capacity for holding and handling what is here. And that as we turn towards again and again, our experience, as we understand that that which is challenging or difficult does not reflect upon us that we are somehow wrong or bad or failing here, simply that we are challenged by what this life presents and that we maybe also recognize that this is something we share with all others. We all face such challenges. Then, in fact, the challenges become part of a basis for reconnecting, reconnecting with ourselves because we realize, oh, I care for my life and it serves my well-being to stay close here. And reconnecting with each other because we realize, oh, this is shared. Oh, you too go through this. We all co-participate in this experience as human beings. And when we understand that, the struggle and the pain we do at times experience, rather than it separating us, it actually brings us together. And we see this when we share, when we talk about in the small groups or in the questions or at other times, and we hear from each other about challenges and difficulties, and we recognize them in ourselves or aspects of it, we see how we feel closer to each other and closer to ourselves as a result. And what we begin to learn and discover is the deep satisfaction we long for, we seek in life, comes through our connection with this moment and with our experience where we are. And that a capacity to open to, to accept and to receive our life fully, unconditionally, to hold nothing back and to leave nothing out is a profound and powerful foundation for deep well-being, for peace and for happiness. And this is a profound understanding that we can begin to to, to penetrate, that has depths that go onward, deeper and further as we go more into what this means. And there is also a process here that we see that the, the practice is asking us to release our mind inviting us, supporting us to release our mind and our life from the way it is driven by reactive patterns of greed and selfishness, of aversion, of hatred, of rejection, of ill will, and the, and the confusions that we get entangled in that lead to our reinforcing and acting upon those patterns, believing them to serve our happiness when in fact they undermine it. So we see out of compassion and with clarity for ourselves. Oh, I wish to free my mind and heart of this. And we can practice in this way. And the acceptance of our condition is, is incredibly important here. And yet we also see that acceptance goes to where I am. 
what it involves is also a sense of commitment to transformation for what is possible in the next moment. So here is where I am, but I have a vision of freeing my heart and my mind and my life from those reactive patterns. And I want to, to work in this way. And likewise in the world, we are asked to open to, to accept where we find our world to be of which there are so many things that are distressing, that are painful, that are unfortunate. And while, of course, there are also many things that are beautiful and blessed and uplifting and delightful, we may find it not so easy to open to that which is not comfortable for us. And we can say, using the word in another way, that there is equally, there is that which is not acceptable. This is different than an absence of acceptance, because acceptance says this is how it is. Not this is how it will always be, or somehow that it must always be so, but that we start from where we are, and yet we may recognize and need to recognize there is so much in our world of the ways that greed and selfishness, that hatred and ill will, that fear and disconnection play out at individual and community, social, national, and international levels that is harmful to ourselves and to so many other beings and to the very fabric of life that we are part of. And so, as we touched on in some of the reflections this morning and also in the small group, the, we, we look, we see, and at the moment in the news... We might think, I, I don't want to be listening to the news. I'm on retreat. And that's okay to take a period of time when one doesn't. That can be wise. And yet for myself, I'm deeply affected by the ongoing response to the, to the death of a black American man a week or two ago now. And in fact, the, the many deaths of black American people at the hands of the police force and in other situations. And the, this is a, as a way, an aspect or an expression of an institutionalized racism that is profoundly harmful. And we see, of course, equally institutionalized sexism, patriarchy, ecological destruction, a way in which the natural world is exploited, that so many people in different ways are discriminated against or oppressed. And we see that Acceptance here means to recognize that it is so, to not deny the truth of this. But it does not mean becoming passive to say, oh, that's how it is. I guess I should just cultivate equanimity. There's also something about allowing ourselves to feel the pain, the distress that's here. And as Helen was speaking so beautifully last night about the bees and the, you know, these, 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 these little beings who live in community with each other and who we depend upon, and yet our way of our society is, 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 is harming their well-being profoundly. This, again, just as a, as a particular example of how, as a culture, we're living in a way that's not sustainable. We're living in a way that is, in so many ways, destructive, born of this incessant need for more that cannot be fulfilled by getting more. 
Otherwise, we would have fulfilled it because we've already got more. We see it goes on and on. At some point, we have to say no. And that quality of no is really important. It's not a quality of aversion or rejection. If we feel the pain of what we see taking place in the way of oppression, exploitation, ecological destruction, if we see and feel the pain of this, what we notice is something that feels, I think, for many of us, very close to anger. But I would distinguish it from anger and say that it could be better described as outrage. That sense of our heart calling for justice that recognises that certain ways of behaving and acting in the world are not acceptable. And we have to acknowledge they happen. We don't want to be denying that. And nor just going into reactivity or judging the fact that it happens, but seeing in what way am I moved to respond? Because this is an essential element of our spiritual practice, to make a response to the presence and to the activity of greed, of hatred, of delusion. When it arises in our own mind, this is the path of inner freedom freeing ourselves from the compulsive inner habits that drive us but do not serve us. And engaging and responding to greed, to hatred, to delusion in the world. This is equally important. We will not find peace in ourselves while others are suffering. We can be at peace to a significant degree in our development of equanimity, in our opening to the fact that this is inevitably part of life. And so far as we are part of the systems and benefiting from the systems that create such harm, we will be suffering also. A different kind of suffering. I'm not trying to equate it with the suffering of being oppressed. But at another level, we are all oppressed by greed, by hatred and by delusion until we are freed from it in our own hearts and minds, but equally until our world and our society, our culture and our communities are freed from this. We are all oppressed by this. And I don't want to deny that some of us, and certainly I would own that I have immense privilege as a, a middle-class, educated, Westerner, a man, heterosexual, cisgender, and apparently white, which is mostly my experience as an adult, although I'm one quarter Asian. And it wasn't my experience as a, as a young person when I was much darker than I am now in my skin tone. But I am absolutely a very privileged person. And, and for me, there's a, a way in which we need to own that, if it's true, as well as acknowledging the ways we might be subject to oppression, to discrimination, that appears in so many forms to do with ability, to do with age, to do with gender identity, sexual orientation, to do with so many elements of who we are, our class, our education, our financial circumstances, our health circumstances. There's so many ways in which we can be challenged in this regard. And in naming this, I'm aware this, this can be really tender territory for many of us in many different ways. And I hope that my naming it 
can land for you in a way that's okay. Because I know I won't say and can't, won't be able to say everything that could and that in a way should be said in talking about what I'm talking about here. But at the same time, to not say anything because one can't say it all is part of where I think we get into trouble. We need to find ways to speak about what we're concerned about, perhaps to take risks that some people won't like what we say, or some people will even tell us that we've got it wrong. We didn't really understand. And I've sometimes had people point out to me where my own perspective in these areas is limited and it's not easy, but I'm so grateful for them when they do that, when they help me to see my own blind spots. And I think we all need to be seeking and in the conversations we have to understand more because somehow where we are in our world is, is so profoundly affected by where each of us are. Our world and ourselves arise together. And we cannot decouple our deepest happiness and well-being from the deepest happiness and well-being of life. We cannot separate the suffering that our fellow human beings and other creatures and life forms experience, including habitats, ecosystems, environments, the living webs of inter interconnected and interdependent life. We are woven into these in ways that are both obvious and not so obvious, that are both simple and yet profound. Shanti Deva, the wonderful teacher and mystic and poet who lived in the, uh, the sixth century in India, he, he once said, just as we see our own limbs as part of our body, can we not see all beings as the limbs of embodied life? And I'd, I'd go further even to say that the, it's not just all beings, but all living things expressions of this embodied life, this manifest existence. And what would it mean to really see that for ourselves? I sometimes have reflected in recent times that some of the shame, the self-judgment, the criticism, the 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 difficulty with feeling our own sense of real value that is a real challenge for many of us in our Western, our modern Western culture. I don't mean Western by a necessary geographic thing. It's more of the, the nature of the culture. I think you know what I mean. And it's, it's the particular materialistic and consumeristic orientation of it that I think sometimes that maybe this is an expression of the way we've lost respect We've, we've failed to give true value to so much of life, to creatures, to environments, to those who look different or who behave differently than we ourselves. And to actually give respect to life, to give respect to ourselves, but to all of life, is the basis for rediscovering our true dignity and it's a dignity and a nobility that, that animals, the that trees, the that landscapes, that, 
they have it effortlessly and equally too we see it in indigenous non-technological societies much more naturally and i think perhaps that our our guilt our shame our self-rejection is maybe a painful legacy of our collective cultural disconnection our psychological distancing from nature and life which isn't something we did personally i think it's really important to understand this it's not that you or i decided to do this or even just did it unintentionally unconsciously by ourselves it's part of a shared collective process that has deep pain and sorrow in it at what has happened in our world through our human our collective human journey and it calls us to wake up not just individually as people as individual human beings but to wake up also collectively as a community that understands our interconnection that understands our dependence upon the web of life the fragile the beautiful the precious and the remarkable web of life that we are all part of and so we we may be called to stand up and speak out on behalf of what we are concerned about to be willing to say yes black and ethnic minority lives matter because they do because our systemic cultural patternings don't value and support people from those ethnic heritage as well and as fully as people from other ethnic heritages and there's a certain willingness to stand up that we find in ourselves and I'm inspired in this by the story of my own grandmother who's a bengali indian from calcutta and she was one of the young women who together with gandhi in the time of the uh, the british oppressive government of of the indian subcontinent stood up in non-violent and courageous protest against the british government and stood in front of the armies non-violently but courageously calling for an end to the colonial oppression of her country and her people and something incredibly vulnerable and powerful in this this kind of placing oneself in a position of vulnerability to call for change to call for something to be attended to to be healed that needs that attention and healing and myself in recent times i've also as some of you have will know and have mentioned when someone was mentioning i've been involved in activism for ecology and in relationship to the climate crisis of our current time and many of you too i'm sure would have been engaged in this and perhaps other important fields of endeavor to to bring attention to to call our collective wakefulness to where we see the harm and the blindness and that there is a vulnerability in this but what i find here is that as we speak about these things we find that others care also and we connect and this is something we need to do together in the in the context of the activism i've been engaged in with extinction rebellion the uh 
the uh, eco-climate activism movement that's calling for non-violent civil disobedience as a way of raising public, public awareness and uh, bringing political pressure to bear and employing this, uh, this vehicle, which I find remarkable and powerful and inspiring. One of the ways that uh, many of the messages people would sign off, they'd sign off love and rage in the communications and something kind of interesting and beautiful there talking about acting out of love, but also out of rage, anger at what is happening that is harmful. And I could never sign my messages like that. It didn't quite feel right to me. Maybe it's too many years of Dharma practice and working with handling strong emotions, but at the same time, I feel strong emotions here. And it was just recently that I, I came across a, a way to express it that really worked for me. And as I'm saying this, I'm vaguely wondering if I said something about this already on the retreat. I, I, anyway, if I did, I'm just going to say it again. Um, it won't be quite so exciting. But anyway, I was reflecting on what this quality that arises and I realized, oh, I can sign my letters love and co-rage. If you substitute the you in courage with a space or a dash, co-rage. And it's got a very particular quality. It's rage that's shared. Not, so it's not so much anger or hatred or that form of aversion that's become very charged, but it's more the shared concern that has a fierceness to it, that's willing to stand up and say no. And this is something that I really feel is important. That same courage calls us to sit in the face of difficult inner patternings, to stay steady in the presence of our reactivity. And it asks us to stand up and speak out or be seen or find ways to make our voice and our concern heard. And this, I think, is equally part of our spiritual journey and of our deepening understanding of what it means to cultivate that which is truly beautiful and blessed in life, that brings deep peace and well-being to ourselves and to our world. And so these inner and outer dimensions have their place. And at times we may need to emphasize more one or the other to stay in balance. But both, I think, need to be included. And I'm just aware of the time, so I'm going to... Having started a little late, I'm also ending a little late, but I'd like to, I think, just pause here and invite you all just to sit together quietly for a few moments. May we all in our practice here together and in our lives, may we deepen in wisdom, in compassion, and in courage for the transformation of our lives and our world. 
for our own well-being and for the well-being of all that lives. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.